Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Dan Vicuña, National Redistricting Manager with Common Cause, who warns about the threat to democracy that looms as the extremist supermajority on the U.S. Supreme Court is set to hear the Moore v. Harper case. Libero de la Piana, of the National Campaign for Transit Justice, who talks about the urgent need for massive investment in public transit to achieve both racial equity and climate justice. And Emma Fisher of the group Climate Cabinet, who discusses her group's recent report outlining the dangers to free speech as 17 states pass laws to suppress climate activist protests targeting fossil fuel infrastructure. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. As famine engulfs Somalia in the Horn of Africa, 500,000 children are at risk of dying, according to the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization. Hunger is concentrated in the isolated regions of central and southern Somalia, areas controlled by the al-Shabaab Islamist rebels. So far this year, half a million children have been treated for severe malnutrition. The United Nations has warned that famine this fall and winter could be much worse than that of a decade ago. Over the summer, there was a 30% increase in the estimate of children at risk of starvation. More than 7 million people, half the population of Somalia, are now in desperate need of food aid. Mercy Corps reported children are now dying of hunger and thirst. Climate change, in addition to the war in Ukraine, are contributing to the intensity of the food crisis. UN aid workers complain of the slow flow of international aid to deal with the Somalia crisis, in contrast to the billions in aid and material being sent to Ukraine. A single payphone rings in Beijing with an unusual message. It's a call from residents of the town of Huludao, 400 miles away. When answered, the caller complains about foul-smelling air and chemical leaks. They recount how residents are having trouble breathing, but the local government refuses to act. According to The Economist, this is one of the creative ways Chinese activists attempt to pressure the state to address chronic pollution problems. An artist known as Nut Brother has organized a number of protest actions, including putting toy fish and peppers in a dirty canal in the city of Jibo. He's led concerts with musicians dressed in hazmat suits and gas masks who sing about air, soil, and water pollution. Activists in the Rust Belt of northeast China have a tough time getting the government to take action to clean up pollution. In the past, Chinese regulators had asked the public to identify polluting companies. But Beijing officials now often retaliate when its failures are exposed. Over the last decade... Beijing has harassed and suppressed a growing number of environmental activists. While police have attempted to shut down the payphone protest tactic, the pollution story has been widely shared on social media. In fact, the local government was pressured to suspend production in some polluting factories, which improved the city's air quality. 
This spring, water activism bubbled up in the sleepy suburban town of Tawamenson, Pennsylvania. Hundreds of middle-class residents turned out to oppose the plan to sell the town's wastewater facility to a giant private corporation. Across Pennsylvania and New Jersey, for-profit companies are buying up water and wastewater systems after state legislation authorized private utilities to buy up municipal water plants. The move to privatize municipal water systems has provoked growing public opposition. The Board of Supervisors defended the plan to sell off the sewer system, maintaining it would help pay for major capital expenses, including upgrades for stormwater infrastructure and building a new fire station. However, workers at the wastewater plant told The Nation magazine they feared for their jobs if they opposed the plan. Bucks County, Pennsylvania recently defeated a proposal to sell their local water and sewer authority for $1.1 billion. Residents opposed that plan out of concern privatization would lead to charging higher rates. Across the U.S., municipal water systems have become the victim of chronic underfunding, climate change, and institutional racism. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manso. Over recent months, the Supreme Court's extremist conservative six-member supermajority has handed down rulings in several landmark cases that overturned decades of precedence and settled law on abortion rights, restrictions on guns in New York State, weakening the EPA's ability to regulate pollution and carbon emissions, and further tearing down the separation between church and state. Now four justices have voted to hear the Moore v. Harper case, where the court will decide if North Carolina's Supreme Court has the power to strike down the legislature's illegally drawn partisan gerrymandered congressional map that favors GOP candidates for violating the state's constitution. Legislators have argued that a debunked interpretation of the U.S. Constitution, known as the independent state legislature theory, renders the state courts and state constitution powerless in matters relating to federal elections. If the conservative court majority endorses the independent state legislature theory in the Moore case, voters across the country could no longer challenge partisan gerrymandering in their state Supreme Courts, eliminating all judicial checks and balances on a state legislature's power, including a governor's veto, citizen-led ballot measures, and independent redistricting commissions. Future presidential elections could also be impacted, where state legislatures could disregard the will of the people and certify the losing candidate's slate of electors, subverting the presidential electoral college process. Your reporter spoke with Dan Vicuña, national redistricting manager with Common Cause, who talks about the threat to democracy that looms over the Supreme Court's future ruling in the Moore v. Harper case. So Moore v. Harper originates in a challenge to a partisan gerrymander of North Carolina's congressional map. Uh, The North Carolina legislature, uh, run by Republicans, 
uh, drew up a congressional map, 14 seats, you know, in a state that's pretty evenly split between Democrats and Republicans, drew it in such a way that Republicans would win 11 of those seats. And, and in doing so, in skewing the partisan outcomes, also split a bunch of communities, making it very hard for them to achieve fair representation. In particular, the map really targets representation for black communities, tries to split them up to sort of uh, bleach as many districts as possible, make it easier for uh, Republicans to get elected. Um, we, along with uh, other sets of plaintiffs, uh, brought a challenge to this map in state court. Uh, we argued that the map rep represented an illegal partisan gerrymander that violated the North Carolina Constitution. Uh, we, we also brought a, a similar case um, last cycle that succeeded. Um, you know, we, we make the argument that the Fair Elections Clause of the state's constitution provides uh, very strong protections even beyond federal law. Um, also under some provisions of the state constitution that are pretty similar to you know, the federal constitution's equal protection, First Amendment, basically saying that you know, by diluting the votes of Democrats in the state, you're, you're violating voting rights in a way that's illegal under the state constitution. So we won at the state level. Uh, North Carolina legislators, uh, of course, being very uh, unhappy about being, being held accountable. Um, and not liking the new map that uh, the state Supreme Court ordered some nonpartisan um, special masters to draw, uh, challenged this case, took this what was a state law case to the U.S. Supreme Court. And the argument that they're making in the U.S. Supreme Court uh, is a pretty dangerous one. It's uh, They are asking the court to adopt a, a radical power grab in a theory they're, they're calling the independent state legislature doctrine. Um, and the argument they're making is that the U.S. Constitution gives legislators completely free reign, basically superpowers, to make whatever rules they want for federal elections, and state courts can play no role in providing any oversight. Uh, you know, it's just a huge power grab with potentially dangerous consequences. Dan, beyond what we've talked about so far in terms of the consequences uh, of the U.S. Supreme Court conferring legitimacy on the independent state legislature theory, what are some of the other consequences for democracy that you're concerned about in terms of what I've heard described as the utter chaos that would ensue with state elections and state laws and governor's ability to veto legislation passed by a state legislature? Yeah, I mean, there are you know, state courts have played a key role in ensuring voting rights in emergency situations uh, to interpret laws during the pandemic. I do kind of interpret laws in ways that were um, in support of greater expansion of voting rights. You know, I obviously imagine scenarios where strict uh, voter ID or the closing of polling places in certain communities or eliminating early voting if it uh, is used disproportionately by uh, certain communities that uh, the majority party doesn't like. Um, if legislatures engage in those acts in order to increase their electoral chances um, to be able to do so. Um, without any oversight in state law and to have to you know, rely solely on federal courts that may be unfriendly to you know, the arguments uh, of voting voting advocates. It's bad enough that this case sort of puts at risk protections for um, re redistricting and fair maps, but it certainly ex expands uh, beyond to um, other voting rights issues as well. Dan, how can the federal government respond if the Supreme Court confers legitimacy on the independent state legislature theory. From my understanding, the federal government does have authority over how federal elections are conducted in the states. What's Congress doing to consider legislation that would preempt this possible outcome? Well, there's been you know a few different attempts. There's been efforts to uh, 
pass a new Voting Rights Act, uh, to pass more expansive uh, voting rights protections that, that include campaign finance reform, that include independent redistricting commissions um, in every state that's got more than one district. Um, those have passed the House. Unfortunately, they hit a bit of a wall in the, the filibuster-protected uh, Senate. Um, but certainly, you know, the, the elections clause, which the um, North Carolina legislators are using in this case, Morby Harper, um, also includes a provision that very clearly gives Congress authority to act. Um, and, you know, this is a perilous moment for democracy broadly. Um, and we, we believe that, that is, this is the time for them to act to ensure that federal elections are protected from those who would manipulate our democracy for partisan purposes. That was Dan Vicuña, National Redistricting Manager with Common Cause. Learn more about the threat to democracy in the Moore v. Harper Supreme Court case by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Across the United States, greenhouse gas emissions contributing to climate change from the transportation sector average about 30% of the total while in some states like Connecticut it's closer to 40%, and in California the average is about 50%. The transportation sector is also rife with inequities, as people with enough money can drive their own cars, while lower-income residents must rely on public transit. In almost all cases, public transit systems are underfunded, inconvenient to use, and often don't go to all the destinations where riders need to go. The National Campaign for Transit Justice, part of the group Just Strategy, is addressing these issues by supporting organizing around racial and economic justice. The group believes when people can count on the bus or train to get where they need to go, they can easily access jobs, education, medical care, culture, goods, and services. Between the Lines Melinda Tuhus spoke with Libro della Piana senior strategist with Just Strategy, and leader of the National Campaign for Transit Justice. Here he talks about the major challenges mass transit has faced during the coronavirus pandemic, and why there's an urgent need for massive investment in public transit to achieve both racial equity and climate justice. So we came together uh, as a campaign two years ago during the beginning of the pandemic in order to uh, bring together uh, grassroots riders organizations, transit advocates, uh, transit unions and safe streets and bike groups to save public transit, which was under threat of really being uh, derailed in this country because of the pandemic crisis. And since then we have won uh, billions of dollars in relief for transit systems, we have a one historic investment in public transit in the infrastructure, uh, the bipartisan infrastructure law. And we're continuing to fight to uh, see a future where transit is essential and is part of building a, a prosperous, sustainable, and equitable future for the US. Whether you drive a car or ride a bus, more public transit is, is good for you. If you breathe air, public transit is good for you. And that transit is in fact the pathway uh, to the future. It is at the intersection of racial equity and climate justice. We cannot build the kind of country 
that millions of Americans seek without big investments and a transformation of public transit in this country. Does your organization call for free transit or free buses or free anything related to transportation? We think that's really up to the local situation. In many places, uh, free transit makes a lot of sense to both encourage ridership and also because it is a, a question of equity and access for working class and, and low-income people. Um, we also know that without other sustained operational funding, that just uh, reducing or eliminating uh, fare box actually threatens transit um, because some places the transit systems depend completely on fare box. States give little or no money to public transit. And that has to change. I think we see in Europe that in response to the pandemic, there was an increase in uh, transit investments. And there was also many free options added uh, in order to encourage people uh, to, to get back on public transit. And also the crisis around oil prices and gas prices caused by shortages, caused by inflation, caused by war in Europe, all of these things point to the need for increased transit. And part of the way to do that are just or free fares. You said most of the money went into the infrastructure package last year and not into the IRA so much. Do you know what that money was for? Every five years, the U.S. Uh, uh, reauthorizes funding for transportation in the U.S. And that reauthorization of, of transportation funding was wrapped into the, in, the infrastructure law. So this $108 billion is basically over the next five years, and it is the largest single investment in public transportation in, U, in history. Now, highways also had an unprecedented investment. So of course, that's not great because building it more and more highways is terrible for the environment. There was also additional money for rural uh, public transit. There was additional money for capital investments. And there was, I forget how much, I think it was $7 billion or $6 billion for low or no emission bus grants. So there were billions and billions of dollars for transit that we helped win through grassroots organizing and action, including, you know, really important transitions to electrification and job protection, because union workers were concerned that electrification could also be used to kind of push out workers from the industry or to privatize. And so we have also some protections there to make sure that transition to no emission, low emission buses protects workers and, and good paying jobs. That was Libro della Piana, leader of the National Campaign for Transit Justice. Learn more about their transit justice campaign by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Republican-controlled state legislatures across the U.S. have passed anti-protest laws, largely in response 
to indigenous and environmental activist-led nonviolent civil disobedience protests targeting fossil fuel infrastructure projects. According to a report from the group Climate Cabinet, since 2018, 17 states have passed critical infrastructure laws seeking to criminalize constitutionally protected rights to free speech in assembly. The laws passed in 17 states, including Oklahoma, North and South Dakota, Kansas, West Virginia, and Indiana, can now charge climate activists engaged in protest with felonies, imposing penalties of up to 10 years in prison and $1 million in fines. The corporate-funded American Legislative Exchange Council, known as ALEC, helped draft this model legislation that criminalizes protests against fossil fuel pipelines, gas terminals, and other oil and gas expansion projects in 24 states, all under the guise of protecting critical infrastructure. Your reporter spoke with Emma Fisher, Deputy Director with Climate Cabinet, who summarizes her group's recent report on states criminalizing protests against fossil fuel infrastructure that are clearly aimed at suppressing indigenous and environmental activists' effective opposition to oil and gas projects. So our report found that since 2016, in response to high-profile protests against the Dakota Access Pipeline, we've seen a coordinated effort to pass bills that criminalize protests against pipelines and fossil fuel infrastructure in states across the U.S. Um, So just since 2016, 24 states have introduced these critical infrastructure bills, and 17 of them have passed, many of them using a model bill, which was essentially copy-pasted between states and written by the right-wing political organization, the American Legislative Exchange Council, or more often known as ALEC, um, which has pushed other anti-protest, pro-fossil fuel, and stand-your-ground laws across the U.S. But these bills, specifically these critical infrastructure bills, they use that vague term, but they're specifically designed to deter protests against pipelines and fossil fuel infrastructure. Um, These protests have historically been led by indigenous activists, water protectors, and other frontline communities. And these bills severely threaten people's free speech, protesters' safety, and our ability to tackle climate change because protest has been a successful tactic in slowing the build-out of new fossil fuel infrastructure. So at Climate Cabinet, we're really worried about how these types of coordinated legislative efforts at the state level can spread quickly across states, even without federal action, which is what we saw here, uh, severely threatening our democracy and our ability to act on climate change. Go into some detail, if you would, about the various harsh penalties that are invoked here in these new state laws. It's quite alarming when you read the summary of your report, which talks about up to 10 years in prison or a million-dollar fine. What, what's the range of penalties here, and, and what are the crimes that are uh, being cited specifically that people will have had to commit to uh, be eligible to be sentenced to these harsh, uh, harsh penalties? Right. It is extremely concerning, especially because it's important to note that, of course, trespassing and vandalizing any sort of property is already illegal, usually as a misdemeanor, and protesters and activists know that. But these bills really heighten those penalties and make it extremely dangerous and potentially life-altering to take part in one of these protests, expressing free speech and the right to assemble. 
So these bills heighten penalties for trespassing and for vandalism on critical infrastructure, which includes things like pipelines. The penalties can range from up to fines at ten dollars to $100,000 for trespassing or vandalism, depending on the state, a range between six months to up to 10 years in prison. It also includes really scary penalties for organizations, which could be on the hook for supporting protesters or even communicating with protesters. This is called vicarious liability. And basically, it could make it risky for environmental organizations to even communicate or try to help out activists that are taking part in these protests, which are known to slow the expansion of fossil fuels. And those fines can be up to a million dollars for those organizations aiding protesters. So, you know, in that case, you would have an organization be fearful they could be bankrupted by such a law if they uh, lent any support or, as you said, communication with people engaged in nonviolent civil disobedience. This country and the world, as a matter of fact, has a long history of social justice protests and movements engaging in nonviolent civil disobedience to move society forward in a progressive direction. And that has succeeded time and again all across this world. What are your concerns about people who strongly believe in a cause and choose to engage in nonviolent civil disobedience? What kind of chilling effect will these laws have? And is there any current evidence that uh, these laws have, in fact, chilled or intimidated people from uh, engaging in such action? I definitely agree with you. This country does have a long history of direct action and activism leading to important social change. And it's very scary that there's this coordinated effort to criminalize that right um, and the ability to work to make this country better. Um, And, you know, this is happening on fossil fuel pipeline protests. We're seeing anti-protest laws um, as a backlash to the Black Lives Matter movement as well. But specifically with these pipeline protests, critical infrastructure bills, one of the main issues that comes up is that they're really vague and unclear, which makes it difficult for activists to have a clear sense of what risks they're actually taking on when they choose to take part in a protest. And that that contributes to the chilling effect because it's unclear whether or not you will be penalized. And we've seen activists arrested under these laws for activities that are actually still legal, but it's just unclear and the implementation is so difficult when the law is so vague. So, for example, in Louisiana, there's an example of some activists that were staging a peaceful protest in kayaks fighting for clean water. Their actions were totally legal. They were allowed to be there. They weren't doing anything um, besides peacefully protesting in kayaks, and they were arrested under felony charges. Those charges were eventually dropped, but it still had the effect of suppressing their free speech and ability to assemble because this law was in place and was interpreted in a way that was maybe or maybe not how it was intended. That was Emma Fisher, Deputy Director with the group Climate Cabinet. Find a link to their new report, 17 States Pass Anti-Protest Laws to Suppress Fossil Fuel Infrastructure Opposition, and related articles by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed 
by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archived programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WHYR in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, KTAL in Las Cruces, New Mexico, Progressive Voices Network nationwide, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.